Go, this is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. So tonight we're just going to take a walk. You're going to come with me and we're going to take a walk. We started it last week. It's like this walk started when Jesus walked into Gethsemane. And he took his disciples there and he said something very important to them. He's going to say a couple things now that he knows is so vital. And he says to them, pray, pray that you do not fall into temptation. Jesus knows this is not an easy ordeal for him. He knows that temptation is always lurking there. And we'd much rather do what our flesh wants. And of course, he even says, Lord, if you're willing, let this cup be passed from me. Not my will, but yours be done. But you can even feel and sense the struggle. You know, I mean, anybody who is going to sweat drops of blood, he's struggling with this. You know, Satan is wanting to pull him away so that this does not happen, that that people stay lost, that he's, he's still the winner. But, you know, Jesus says to his disciples, I want to teach you that if you stay connected to me, there is no temptation too great. There is no temptation too great if you go to the Lord for your way of escape. So we, we have to have that understanding that we've got a greater power that is greater, that is greater than Satan himself because he is stronger than we are, but he is not stronger than the power that lives within us. So um, then, then, you know, then we, we heard Jesus say, you know, when, when they fell asleep, you know, we know that they fell asleep because they were so sorrowful. And we talked about that sometimes when we're such in a down place, the best thing we can do or we think it is to escape is to sleep. But look at Jesus' answer was, he said, you know, why are you sleeping? Get up get up, come to me, come to me. I am sufficient to get you through this. You know, even though you're in this state right now, you pray, you pray that you too don't fall into temptation. So I thought that was such a wonderful time that he had, but such great instruction. And then right during this time, you have the, the, you know, you have this crowd and you have all the, the armies coming in, you know, with all their, with all their, um, you know, swords and everything, you know, for Jesus. And who's leading the pack? It's Judas, you know, and he kisses Jesus on the cheek as an identifiable factor. That's the one you want, but so sad to use something like a kiss and, and then, then he says, he says this, you know, you are coming after me with all of this, and you could you could have gotten to me any time in those three years. I think right here, Jesus is wanting them to know, I'm in charge of this story. I have the timetable. I know when exactly the time is that I'm going to surrender over to you. And he pretty much says that, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. It's like, okay, now's the time, not a second early, not a second late. And he, he just puts that in there to make sure. Yeah, you had many opportunities, but, but it wasn't time. Now, now I say it's time. And then, of course, Peter and... And the denial, you know, such a sad story. He was warned, and yet, uh, 
you know, he, he's caught up and, and he denies Jesus. And, but the timing, I just can't get over the timing of how, how when the rooster crowed and Jesus happened to be walking by at the exact time. That, that when the rooster crowed and Peter then has the realization of what he's done. And I'm sure that what Jesus said to him all of a sudden came in the forefront. But at that exact time, Peter was there, Jesus was walking. And he was able to look right at Peter and that look. That look of maybe disappointment, but most of all, um, of, of sheer love. And maybe Peter remembered what Jesus said to him. And when you come back, so he did not, his, his faith did not fail, but it did falter. But Jesus said, when you come back, what, what a blessing that is for you and I with that. When we falter, when we make mistakes, you know, we have a Savior, and we learned it from when Luke talked about it too. There's not a sin that is not not unforgivable. If we come in repentance, even if we've blasphemed Jesus' name, if we come in repentance, he will forgive. You know, the only sin that is not forgivable is when you deny him, when, 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 you, when you deny God's spirit and say, no, I don't need a savior, I don't want any part of this, and you refuse to believe then of course there's there's no forgiveness. But other than that one, he, he says you and you you take that story, you take that story to to the brethren. In other words, you have been there. You now have experienced what it feels like to to falter, to make that mistake. But you've also seen what I can do. And now you tell them, well, how great that feels. How great that I can take any sin and forgive you. You have not done anything too bad that he, that he can't forgive. So what a story for Peter to be able to tell when he goes out. And then, of course, um, you know, those three verses about Jesus, you know, he's now going to be blindfolded and then they're, Oh my goodness, they're going to start, you know, mocking him, saying, you know, and start hitting him and, and spitting at him. And, you know, and I don't think they were just slapping his face. I think they were sucker punching him. I and mean, I, I just pictured Jesus with a bloody nose and swollen eyes and, you know, and with that blindfold on. And, and yet, he does that. He does that. He continues to do this walk, this walk for you and I. And then at daybreak, the council of elders and the people, they all gather and they, they one more time says, if they say to him, if you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus looks at him. You know, this is so profound, I think. Uh, Jesus knows what to say and he knows when to be quiet. Isn't that a goal that you would love? I, that is a goal I really want. I, want. I want to know exactly when to say. And then he didn't take 14 paragraphs. You know, sometimes he just knew when, yes, it is as you say. You know, or I am. You know, he just knew. And he knew when to be quiet. And this time when they asked, are you the Christ? He, he answered this way. I'm not going to get into that again because you've heard me tell you over and over you won't believe me. You won't answer me. 
But then he puts this, I just, I just love the way Jesus, when he, he puts in a sense that you know it's got such a serious purpose that he's hoping so that they will respond to it. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. I mean, there's no doubt what he's saying. Someday, someday, you are going to be so sorry. You're going to be so sorry when you're standing in front of me. Because you will, because everybody is. Everybody's going to take their individual time and stand before Jesus. And because you refuse to believe, there's going to be a moment that you are going to be so sorry. And then they all asked, are you the son of God? Now, are you, now they ask, are you the son of God? And here, very simply, very truthfully, you are right. You are right in saying that. I am. And then it just exploded. And they all, they, they, they had had it now. Now they said, this man, you've heard it. Now we're marching him to Pilate. So we're on this, we're continuing on this walk. You know, in the nighttime and it's you know and now he's been up all night and now it's day not daytime and he, they're marching him to Pilate and you know these religious leaders they think they got it they think that Pilate's just going to stamp that paper you bet you crucify him you know because oh after all he doesn't show any respect to to Rome and and after he tells people they don't have to pay taxes to Caesar and he, he goes around saying that he's the Christ, he's the king of the Jews. And I think they really thought that Pilate would, would fall to that. And, and in fact, just the opposite, because I think Pilate looked at him and he thought, the king of the Jews, I don't have to be too threatened of, of him. I mean, there he's probably bloody and black eye and, you know, tired and doesn't look too threatening to me as a king. And so he just... You know, he just says, no, I, uh, he, he's not worthy. He's not worthy of dying. You know, and then that one statement where, you know, they try to even say he stirs up people. You know, he, he gets people all worked up. He, he, stirs, he stirs up people all over Judea. And I think that was such an important question that, that you know, you had to answer. Because what does the gospel do to you and I? It better stir us up. Because it does go after us the way we really are. And we have to confront ourselves for what we really are. Otherwise, we wouldn't need a savior. You know, I always said, if this story is boring, and if this story is, is to the point where you're almost callous to it, then probably you don't have a true understanding of who you are and who he is. And so, you know, it's just something we always have to evaluate to make sure that we do know him. And so now it says um, that Pilate says, no, you know, he hasn't done anything worthy of death. And so I'll just, I'll just have Herod take over now. You know, he's, he, Jesus is in, in Herod's jurisdiction. So we'll let Herod take over and another time where Jesus doesn't answer. You know, Herod wants to see Jesus because he's heard about him, probably wants to have Jesus put on a show of tricks for him. You know, Jesus just sees right through that phoniness and he doesn't say a thing, he doesn't do anything and of course this, is, this makes Herod so angry. And so he makes Jesus kind of like a clown. I mean, he, he just puts a robe on him and mocks him and, and then marches him back to Pilate. 
So what a rigmarole on this walk, isn't it? I mean, this poor guy, back and forth, back and forth. And so now Pilate throws up his hands, tries to get them to see. He's tried over and over in many ways. And then he says, you know, okay, what about, you know, we're going to release a prisoner. It's what we do. And they're shouting Barabbas, you know, and he's saying, did you think about that? I mean, release a terrorist, a murderer? Did you ever consider that your life will be in danger with that madman out there? You know, he's trying to get them to see that, I know you hate him a lot, but, but really, he's, he hasn't done anything that's worthy of death. But Barabbas, but they keep shouting, and so he tries to reason him with them the third time, and, and of course, they keep shouting, and so we saw as we ended the study last week that they wore him down, they wore Pilate right down, and so he surrenders Jesus over to be crucified. And he lets Barabbas go. But what a picture, again, of this, this Barabbas and Jesus, just to show us that the innocent, the innocent was willing to take the place of the guilty. So there you go. I mean, simple story of Barabbas and all that, but really it is for you and I so that we can visually see this awful Barabbas, this awful you and I, because we can't save ourselves. So we're lost in our sin, and yet the innocent is, is willing to take the place of the guilty. And the same thing with when he said, "Will you can this cup be passed from me. I mean, I don't think he was scared. I don't think he, he wasn't afraid of the pain or anything like that, but he knew that that cup re- represented um, God's, God's judgment and his wrath. And he, he knew that that was the worst of all, but he was willing to take on God's wrath and judgment so that we wouldn't have to. And then he's, then we read the way Luke put it, that he handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. And he said he, he surrendered Jesus to their will. And, and that's how we ended, because I, I think we just need to keep reiterating that, like I said, Jesus is in charge of this story. Don't kid yourself. He is not caught up in, in the middle of these circumstances that he has no control over. No, he handed himself over again. So as they led him away, we start tonight's lesson, and they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene. He was on his way in from the country, and, and he put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. So it's like they see Simon. You know, there's something about Simon Cyrene. He's from North Africa, about 800 miles away. And as history would say, they, and theologians believe that he was back into Jerusalem. He took that 800-mile journey to be a Passover pilgrim. And so, you know, he probably has heard of Jesus, but he probably doesn't know too much. I mean, 800 miles is a long ways. But the one thing that he is not wanting to identify with is with a criminal. And so they seized him because he's probably a bigger man. Because the cross, I didn't know this, um, the cross generally weighed 300 pounds. And 
the crucifixion wasn't something new, but the Romans perfected it. They made it a punishment of sheer torture. So they knew exactly what kind of wood they knew exactly the, the, the weight. Now, they took the, the piece, the biggest piece of the cross, and, and the Romans themselves would, would plant that so they, they wouldn't have to carry that. So they planted that tall piece of the cross in the ground in a place, of course, that was very visible so that people could walk by and see. But then they would make the criminal carry the crossbow and that crossbar weighed 75 to 100 pounds. And, and Jesus, of course, because Pilate said, let's just beat him to a pulp and hope, hopefully that that, will, that that will be good enough for you. But of course it wasn't. So you know that he has been scourged with those little metal things. And he is broken and his wounds are open. And I don't mean to be gory, but they knew that, that this cross would be so bad so that when the criminal would be on this cross, that when they breathe, when they breathe, their, their back would be going up and down and it's like slivers in those open wounds. So they mastered this so that it would be brutal to the point that, that is almost um, unexplainable so that they were tortured so badly. And so Simon is carrying this cross for Jesus. And then it's a, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. So a large number. Now, who are these people? And, and, and really, it's, this is typical process of crucifixion. I mean, you know, it's kind of like a train wreck. You don't want to see it, but yet you do. And you, you watch things. You, you know it's not going to be. When they tell you on the news, better not watch. It's going to be, I mean, what do you want to do? I mean, this is just human nature. And the same thing with crucifixion. It drew a crowd. So you have this large crowd that's following. And who's leading that? Oh, there's some guard that probably got the privilege of, of this, this important job. He led the pack. And as they, were, as they would be on their way to the place of crucifixion, and they never took the shortcut, they always took it around so that so many more people could see. This was Rome's way of saying, uh, look what happens when you don't listen to us. This is what we do. I mean, they were making such a point. So this guard, as they were walking, he would shout the criminal's name and what he had done. So you've got this kind of commotion and noise going on. You've got the noise of the crowd, because they're probably saying, when, when the guard is shouting the name and shouting what they did, can you just imagine the people saying, oh, good kill them, get rid of them, you know, all this noise. And then along with that, you've got women, and these are not the women of, that know Jesus. These are women that are like hired in. They're hired in to mourn and carry on and wail. So I'm just trying to get us into the story on our walk and know that not only do we see and feel, but we can hear. There's a lot of noise going on. 
and it is chaotic. And so during that time, look at Jesus' turn. So you've got the picture of Simon carrying that crossbar. You've got the noise. You've got Jesus' broken body. And yet he, he looks at those women and he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the barren women, the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. The only way I can kind of explain this, at least to myself if even, you know, what did that mean? I mean, how often haven't you and I said this? Um, you look at the, how fast the world is deteriorating, you know, morals and values and work ethics. And, we, you know, we're talking about it all the time. And we just see the, how, how it's just getting worse and worse. And I know I've made this statement. You know, I know I'm this age. I'm not so concerned about myself. But I am so concerned about my kids and my grandkids. Look, look how it's deteriorated so quickly from the 50s. Look how it's deteriorated so since the internet. And look, look what's happening, you know, how quickly and how, what a fast pace. What's going to happen with my kids? What are my grandkids going to have to face? In fact, I'm sure that's why Jesus said, there's going to be some of you, because see what he's doing, again, he's prophesying in 37 years, you're going to see Rome come in and encircle Jerusalem. And remember when he did that double prophecy on the Olivet Discourse? Remember he gave us that double prophecy and he was saying, when you see the enemy encircle Jerusalem, you get out of town. You listen to me and get out of here because anybody left in this town, if they aren't going to listen to me, they think they, that they can handle this. And we saw the statistics, 1.1 million killed, 97,000, you know, brought in as prisoners. And those that listened and left, their lives were spared. I mean, Jesus is saying that it is going to get so bad that you might even say, I don't know if I even want to bring children into this world anymore. And then he quotes from Ezekiel 20, they will say, this is how bad it's going to be, they will say to the mountain, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. In, in the double prophecy isn't just for 37 years from them in 70 AD. He, he's saying that to you and I. Just know, I'm not kidding around here. You know, he wants us to know that, that this is going to happen. Remember when I said Spurgeon said that 70 AD was like a, a dress rehearsal for you and I? Because now we can look back and everything that Jesus warned in the Olivet Discourse and even right here happened. And so he's saying, sit up and take notice because we have a prophecy here too. So heed the warnings. Know that it's coming don't stick your head in the sand pretending, well, if I don't talk about it, it won't happen. And then, and then verse 31, he says, for if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? You know, a green tree pretty much represented him. And he was saying, if the Romans are going to do this to an innocent man, what do you think they're going to do to a rebellious nation? Because that's what Israel was in 70 AD. They wouldn't listen. 
They wouldn't obey. And so, you know, God in his judgment came down for, for his chosen people to, again, wake up. But that's what he says. I mean, if Rome, you know, if Rome is going to do this to an innocent person, look at how bad they treat an innocent person. How bad do you think? You, you better wake up. And then verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. You know, we, we've seen and heard through Luke the, the details. You know, like I said, this is Jesus' story, you know. And he has everything so timed perfectly. And, you know, even to the triumphant entry, you know, there, there will be a cult. And if they ask, how come you're taking it, just say the Lord needs them. But it's a cult that will be right where I tell you to look. And it will be a cult that never has been written before. And then, you know, where should we have the last Passover and then transition it to the Lord's Supper? Where should that be? Well, you know, you'll see a man carrying water tubs. <laughs> well, that will be very, very noticeable because men don't do that. You know, this, this is the thing. They, 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 you can't help but see just how perfectly Jesus had this story for you and I to see. He was in charge. And this whole thing even about the three criminals, well, two criminals and Jesus. But I mean, if they, you know, to them there was three criminals. And so why was the order the way it was? Why was Jesus put in the middle? Why wasn't he put on the right or left? But putting Jesus right in the middle is, again, so obvious that Jesus wants us to see, okay, there's a left and there's a right, and you have to decide. These two criminals are going to be such a visual to see, you've got, you've got two choices with me. You can either accept or you can reject. Remember weeks ago, it wasn't shortly after we had started, and, and uh, there was that portion of scripture where Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to divide. And that was such a jolt because we always think Jesus came to bring peace. And he does to you and I individually when we accept him as the prince of peace of our lives. And so he will give us that peace that passes all understanding. But I think people think Jesus came to bring peace to the world, but he didn't. He said, I came to divide it. I came to bring the gospel and there's going to be some that say yes and there's going to be some that say no. Remember, he said it can even it can even divide families. Remember when Jason talked about how in that church where prostitutes and atheists would come in and and take cover because they knew it was a safe safe haven there, and and but because they were there, they had to hear. And then that one atheist, he lost his title because he came to know Jesus, and he went home when things calmed down a bit. He went home and his wife said, oh good, we can get back to a little bit more normal. And he said, no, I can't. I can't go back. I can't go back normal. Because I saw, I saw him. I saw that what only God could do. I cannot deny. And, and his wife kicked him out. You know, so does that sound, does that sound like peace? No, that sounds like division to me. It all has to do with the choice that you make with him. So there Jesus is in the center. One on his right and the other on his left. 
Now, in these next verses, the phrase that I put on the top of my Bible, because I want to remember this part so vividly, this is where we see the love of Jesus never fails. In the worst of circumstances, his love never fails. Because look what he has been through so far on this walk. Look at the abuse, because it really... You're gonna you're gonna see words more. You're gonna see this word more and more, like mock and insult and and sneering. So it isn't just a physical pain; it's it's a mental pain as well. I mean, it's an inside hurt. You've got you've got the Romans doing this. You've got the your chosen people, the leaders, the rulers of of the temple and the the synagogue and the people you least expect, shouting crucify him, let's get rid of him. And through all of this noise and this chaos and this abuse, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. How can you say that? Father, forgive them. I think the only way you could say that is because... He, he had such empathy, he had such sympathy for them, and what, again, such a goal to have, instead of getting all riled up when people are against you, or if people say something, it's so easy to, you know, defend and get angry, and, and def, you know, and here, Jesus just absolutely loves He doesn't, he knows, he feels sorry for them because they would not. This is what a heart looks like when you don't have Jesus in it. This is is what human nature looks like left to itself. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know me. They don't know what I can do to change their lives. And then they divided up his clothes by by casting lots you know, not only mentally, with the mental abuse, the physical abuse. I mean, you've got that, you know, they've got that pose right there for everybody to walk by. And, and, and then they probably take that last bit of clothes off Jesus. And you talk about humiliating and, and you're just being gawked at and he had nothing. If you want to look, if you want to know what poor looks like, I think this is the definition of poor. If you looked at Jesus right now, he hasn't got a stitch of clothes. He has nothing. He has no one defending him. He has no support system. There he is. And he, is, he probably looks about as pathetic and as poor as they come. And I'm thinking, yeah, he looked that poor so you and I could know what rich looks like. I mean, rich, the, the real meaning of rich, rich in him. People stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him and they said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
when I was going through that, I have to say, I stopped right there, and I thought for a minute, I thought, you know, the writer of that song, he could have called 10,000 Angels. I would dare say that he was probably reading this scripture, and he got to that, he got to that line, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself, knowing full well who he is and his resources that he could have called, I'm thinking that's when he stopped and he wrote the song. And you know how it goes. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. And then there was written, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Remember in other gospels, we know that the Jews wanted to change that sign and say he said he is the king of the Jews. And what did Pilate say? No way, we're leaving it just as it is. Then one of the criminals, so now here comes the picture. One, one side of Jesus, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Then save yourself and us. But there, again, on the other side of Jesus, see the choice, the other criminal rebuked him, said, don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, now I know that this is a brutal time, and there's not a whole lot of movement going on. But just knowing Jesus the way we are getting to know him, when that man, when the criminal, I think he had enough strength to kind of turn and say it. So Jesus heard his voice right there. Remember me. When he said, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. And there isn't a doubt in my mind that Jesus turned turned his face and looked at this man. And you know how, the way he looked, you know his looks, his looks speak volumes. You know, the way he looked at Peter, his looks had that, that unconditional love. Like, this is what I came for. This is why I'm doing this. And he turned and Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I wish I knew exactly what that meant. I mean, I, I just got a million questions, don't you? Okay, where is that? Where is paradise? Um, what are they doing there? You know, and we're all thinking of loved ones. You know, but there's no answer. All we know is that Jesus said to be absent in the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And then we have this, and I think this is a beauty. Today, today you will be with me in paradise. And that should be enough. Because paradise sounds like paradise to me. And to be with him, you'll be with me. That's all we need to know. And that is pretty wonderful. And that's our, that's our promise. This is what we look forward to. This is the hope that we hold on to. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Very familiar. 
you know, we, we understand that at 12 noon, it got dark for three hours. I mean, I was talking to Tom about it, and he says he, re he remembers that um, his dad worked in a factory, and they even got the time off those three hours. You know, so often people got that time off because it was such a critical time from 12 to 3. You know, that's how high esteem and that's how far gone our society has gotten. Because we held it at such high, you know, at a high worth. But, but I started thinking this time because I don't think I saw this before. You know, how did it become dark? And then it says, for the sun stopped shining. Now, how in the world does that happen? I mean, I first kind of always thought that it would probably be a big old dark cloud came over, you know. But we're talking darkness. It was dark at a high noon until 3 o'clock. It's dark, but it says that the sun stopped shining. I can't explain that. But this is why you can see like, the centurion and people, they're watching this. And it's got to be a jaw chopper. The sun stopped shining. And at the same time, the curtain of the temple, which is no little kitchen curtain, you're talking a massive curtain, it is torn in two. So there is a lot of activity going on. And we're not talking about it's torn because somebody's got little scissors at the bottom of it and then, you know, starts tearing it from the bottom. No, we know that it is like the hand of God that reached out of heaven and touched that curtain and it tore from the top to the bottom but what a beautiful example of saying I have opened heaven to you you have access to me and that's why tonight we had no problem going right into the throne room of God when we pray and it's only because of the blood of Jesus that's how the father who doesn't look at sin, who can't look at sin. He can look at you and me as we approach that throne because he sees us through his blood. That happened right then. He opened it up. We have access. Hebrews says that we can come boldly with confidence into that throne room. Jesus called out with a loud voice, with a loud voice. You know, you're talking the very tail end here. And, and, you know, another little gory thing that I'm sorry to have to bring this up to you, but we've got to, you know, I didn't think of this before either, but when you have open wounds, when they're on the cross for this amount of time, and you've got, you know, the smell of blood and all that, what are you going to, you're going to get, you're going to get these vultures. You're going to get insects that love to burrow into those open wounds. Because, you know, another thing about the, about the Romans with their crucifixion is that, you know, they didn't care about, they cared too, it's about the Sabbath. So what they would do is that they just let the criminals on there tell, tell all wild animals just had their feet and all that was on there, on the cross, were bones. But we know from prophecy that, you know, not only was Jesus' bones not going to be broke, but, you know, that, that you know, again, he was in charge of his story. And 
But right, right here, we see Jesus at the end. His physical body is just absolutely going through all of the worst. And that's why I tell you these details because, you know, I think we just kind of want to pull our ears and shut our eyes. You know, often in the passion of the Christ, didn't you shut your eyes? But you, you had to make yourself open it up. You had to watch what he did. You have to hear it. So, you know, I can't even imagine how weak he must be, you know. But yet, look what he says. Father, in a loud voice. I mean, he mustered up enough because he wanted to make sure that the people who were around were going to hear this. Like, okay, I have taken this walk, and um, I, yep, I've had, I, I've been before Pilate and Herod, and I've been pushed around, and, you know, I've had, I, it looks like I've had no control at all, but his last words in, in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Like, okay, I am now handing it over. All the circumstances that I've been through, they didn't do it. No, now I am handing over my spirit to you. It's, it's time. It's like in a loud voice, he still was in charge. He even says when he takes his last breath. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. See how in charge he was? Then the centurion, seeing what had happened, praise God. I think we read that too fast, too, because this centurion, he is, he's a military man. He's in charge of 100 men. He's got a high position. He probably has been staked there on purpose because that, that was prime. And he's watching all what's transpired. And he can't help it. He can't help it. It's like the atheist, I've seen too much. I've watched what only God can do. This is way beyond human. And so he says, surely this was a righteous man. He praised God, but it just showed, and I looked in a lot of versions, King James and that, and, you know, I think when we've watched this movie, it's like, you know, John Wayne says, surely this is the son of God. You know, I think that's what's so embedded in our mind. But I don't think that this centurion really understands it all. He prays God because he knows he's someone special. He knows that he is a righteous man, and he confesses it openly. Boy, that had to take something. So he said, surely, surely, I'm sure of it now. <laughs> I'm sure that this was a righteous man. I wonder what happened to him, don't you? Don't you just wonder what happened to the centurion after the fact? Are we going to see him in heaven? You know, I think there's a great chance we will. You know, again, a choice that he made. And we're going to see it later with Joseph and Nicodemus too. But the centurion said, surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts. They beat their breasts and went away. You know, that's quite a visual too when you think about it. You know, you've got this group of people who are beating their breast. I mean, that was, you know, that's quite a demonstration. 
So I looked it up. I thought, what does that mean when someone beats their breast? I mean, you know, I don't want to be silly, but, you know, and I think of somebody beating their breast, I think of Tarzan, don't you? You know, but, but beating their breast was definitely, I am making a statement. They saw too, they were watching, and they were making a statement, and beating their breasts meant, I think we were wrong. And they, there, was, there were other words that, that um, I saw with this. Um, they showed such despair. Despair was a word, regret, guilt. And they did it in an obvious public way because they were willing to admit they made mistakes. So, you know, beating their breasts really was quite something that we often read too quickly. So, but all those who knew him, all those who knew him, they, well, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Boy, that had to be a heartbreaker. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. You know, we've made mention that Luke is pretty much a gospel talking to good church people who need to be, who need to be woken up, who need to check their heart to see if they're real or if they're just playing a religious game or not, you know. And so we've watched the Pharisees and Sadducees. We've, we've watched the whole Sanhedrin. We've kind of got a bad taste in our mouth because, you know, they, they were so brutal to Jesus. And they ended up taking him right to the cross. So, you know, but as, when you read this, you can't help but think, oh, there were a few. There were a few. And, and then when you go to John 3 and you read about Nicodemus, because we know that Nicodemus was a part of this too, that he came at night. You know, of course he did. He came at night. He had questions. But Jesus loved it. He didn't care what time of day or night anybody came. If they, if they asked, if they sought, if they knocked, he was willing to open the door and, and answer their questions. You know, and, and for him to say, you know, you got to be born again. What must I do? Well, you got to be born again. Well, I, you know, I can't go back into my mother's womb. No, no, no. No, you got to be born once with water, but then you got to be born with a spirit. You know, Jesus spilled out the gospel to him, and, you know, and then there's, there's where we get the, for God so loved the world he was willing to do this and all you have to do is make the choice make the decision to, to listen and to obey and to let the spirit change your life and, and you won't perish so just think there were these there were a few and, and Joseph he, he was not for what they were doing and he came from Judea, town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a believer. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. And then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb, cut it in the rock. One in which no one had yet been laid, similar to the colt who had never been ridden before. 
Now, of course, Joseph, being part of the council, whether a Pharisee or Sadducee, um, he, he knew the rules. I mean, we're getting close. We're, we are getting close here. Sabbath is right in a little bit, and we cannot deal with a dead body on the Sabbath, so we've got to move fast. Now, one of the Gospels says that Nicodemus, oh, he comes, and he's got 75, you know, he, I think he's the wealthy one, and he brings 75 pounds of spices. See, see, they know that Jesus has got to be, you know, the body's got to be with spices. But I have to kind of laugh. I think these women who are probably watching from afar, they probably shook their heads saying, they, those guys don't know what they're doing. Because what motivated those women to say, we'll wait for the Sabbath to be done, but then we're going back. We're going to do it the right way. So, you know, this is, this is just the way I looked at it. You've got these two men, you know, who, are, who know they've got to do it quick. And so, you know, they dump 75 pounds of spices, wrap Jesus up, and get him into the cave, you know. Shoo, made it. Because it was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. See, I don't think I made, made anything up. I think that's what it said. They were watching and shaking their head and saying, you know, remember, because all these graves look alike, you know, these caves all look alike, so we want to make sure we get to the right one, because they had plans. They went home, prepared spices and perfumes, but they, like good Jewish girls and women, they, were rest, they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. And then on the first day of the week, there, we've been talking about transitions, haven't we? You know, from Passover to the Lord's Supper and, you know, old nature into new nature. You know, Jesus transitions us from one to another. I mean, here you're talking Sabbath, and now we're talking the first day of the week. Resurrection now, you... It is the beginning of your week. First day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They're going to they're gonna do it. They love Jesus so much. And they want to make sure that he is buried in the proper way with tender, loving care. And they were probably talking on the way. I'm sure the, the stone or the, the whatever was going to be blocking the tomb, I'm sure that was a concern to them. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. I'm sure that was a relief. So then when they entered it, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, you know, again, we know the story so well, but we don't stop and think that there had to be some, some wondering here. There had to be some talk here. Like, what in the world? Where, what happened to them? And while they were wondering about this, see, there they stood. Stones rolled away. The body's not there. And they're standing there wondering, and at that right moment, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. So two angels, and we've learned from the beginning of Luke that when Zechariah saw Gabriel, he, he was scared. When Mary saw Gabriel, she was afraid. There was, you know, a, a, an angel coming to visit you was not a common occurrence, 
And so, you know, this created fear when you had these two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood right beside them, and in their fright, they bowed down with their faces to the ground. But it got me comparing to Luke 2. Couldn't help but, but go back to when Jesus came, when Jesus was born. I mean, look at it. Who, who, who announced the birth of Jesus? Who announced that glory to God in the highest? You know, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. It was angels. And now who, who announced Jesus' resurrection? It was angels. But then the comparison was still the same because I thought, but who did the angels go to first? Simple shepherds. To announce his birth. Who did the angels go to for Jesus' resurrection? It was to the women. I mean, what a what an all-encompassing example that Jesus came for us all. And you, you know, you're going from the lowliest of shepherds to the lowly position of women, and that's who the angels proclaimed and announced such magnificent news. And so they were frightened. Their faces are to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? In other words, why, why are you, why don't you know what's going on here? You know, why are you even wondering? Why are you um, kind of dazed? Why aren't you sure? You know, what's this question business? He's not here. He's risen. He's risen. And then that word, remember. You don't think remembering isn't important? And why Jesus says, I want you to do this again and again so you remember. He said, remember. In fact, then the, then the angels quoted the words. Quoted the words of Jesus. Remember while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must, he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. You know, he said that. He told you. But, you know, it's typical when somebody's telling us something, you know, sometimes we don't even hear the full, the full conversation because we get stuck. We get stuck on a, a particular point and we don't, we, we totally miss it. And this, I think, what happened to them every time Jesus, and he told them many times, I'm going to die and every time he would tell him, he would tell him, and I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be spit on. I mean, he would, he would tell him, but he would always say, but on the third day, I will rise again. Now, that word again, um, I had um, a, a lady yesterday, who was, she got a little stumped with that. So I thought, in case somebody else did, because she looked at it as, and on the third day, because she says, in, in the Apostles' Creed, we say, he rose again. How come we need, again, he, he didn't, this didn't happen before. So why did he rise again? And it could be as simple as, well, you know, he was alive and then he died and then he's alive again. It could be as simple as that. But I did, I did look it up. And, and sometimes we do look at again, meaning that it's like 
it happens additional time. But there's another definition of again. So I'm just going to throw that out to you. Another definition of again means anew, afresh, going back to your previous way. Now, doesn't that make sense? And I'm so glad that she had that question because otherwise I, I wouldn't have discovered that. I wouldn't have seen that. That Look, at he rose anew and returned to the life that he once was. It's like his glorified self is now ready to go back to his position next to his father. So just so that you know that it can be simple. He was alive, he died, he's alive again. Or it could mean... He arose anew, afresh, back to his regular position. So. Then they remembered, then they remembered his words. Then. Not the circumstances. You know what jolted them? You know what really got them? They remembered his words. His words are what changes. His words are what wake us up. His words are our everything. That's why we raise our Bibles every week. His word causes us to listen. His word causes us to step out and obey. His word helps us recall the promises that we can hang on to. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11. Did that get you when you read that? To the 11. Because I thought, oh, no. You know? Because we, you know, Luke doesn't talk about it, but we know. So, the 11. And to all the others who were there. And then verse 10 tells us some of the names of the women. It was Mary Magdalene. Boy, did Jesus do a number on her. A woman with really no hope. And talk about social outcasts. And a woman with demons. And, and how Jesus just absolutely changed her life. And then she couldn't stop following him. She was everywhere. And the more I read about her, I thought, you know, really, that should be all of us, right? I mean, when he heals us from our sin, and he heals us from judgment, and heals us from hell, I mean, I think we should be following him all the time. Thanks, Mary Magdalene. Joanna, Mary, the mother of James. In the listing of disciples, there were two James. There was James and John. Um, the sons of Zebedee. This is not the one. This is the other James, the other mother. And the others with whom, who told this to the apostles. So there are others. But for some reason, we know these particular names. But verse 11, boy, I got to tell you, this was not my favorite verse. But they did not believe the women because... The words seemed to them like nonsense. If that isn't men for you. Because, you know, I, I live with this. I live with this. I have got so much to tell my husband 
because I've learned so much. And, and, you know, women, we love details. We know details tell the story. They make it so good. I mean, it's the details that just... And I hear, this is what I hear. Um, short version. I want to hear you, but um, how about short version? You know? And I had a lady write me this afternoon because I told this this, mor- this morning. And she said, she said, my husband says, I don't need the birth pain to just give me the baby. That's the way he put it. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I thought that was great. See, so you guys, you come up with all your little things to tell us women to shorten it up when I'm telling you these women had the truth, and so do we. You know, when we have something to say, you should want to hear the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And you know, there's something about Peter, though, that Luke, I think Luke is just, I don't want to say infatuated, but I think he's using Peter because Peter's just so normal. He's just so like us, you know, so quick to talk before you think, and he's just, he's just like us. And so he uses Peter, and, and, and again, after the denial, after that look from Jesus, after going out and weeping bitterly. You know that there's going to be a change in him. And, you know, we, we haven't seen the, um, the reinstatement yet. I mean, this hasn't happened yet, but it is started. I mean, you've got Peter wondering. You've got him thinking. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Now, you know, in the Gospel of John, we know that John ran with him, and John just puts in, but I beat him. You know, John, there's this run, and John gets to the, to the tomb first, but who goes in first? It's Peter. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and I just can see those wheels just going, and the pieces of Jesus' words starting to fall into place, and he's starting to think, could this really be? You know, this walk that we're on with Jesus, this, this journey, you know, we don't get to the destination in 20 minutes. This takes a lifetime it takes, you know, that's why, you know, I, I'm such an, you know, almost like got my whip about Bible study, you know. You got to come. What are you talking about? You, you just got to keep coming. We're not done yet. There's so much to learn. And so, you know, I, I might get a little pushy if you think that sometimes, but I just think how can you not want to know more? Because the more you know, the more things start coming alive and they start making sense. And I wrote a couple down for my own self because I'm finding the more that I know, the more that I'm sure of something, I start looking at, at this whole story and realize that this whole sacrifice of Jesus is so complete and it's so perfect for me I can be bought back. I can be redeemed. I can be saved. I didn't do anything to deserve it, but because I know what he came to do, the more I, I'm gra- grabbing hold of that truth, the more I know that. There's no question. The sacrifice, be paid at all. It's complete. It's perfect for me. 
I don't have to doubt again. I accept what he did. I accept that grace. I can sing blessed assurance all day long. I'll tell you, that's a great way to live. And then I wrote another one down. Death, because you know you hear so, and it, it is a scary word. You know, you even say, I'm not afraid to die. I'm just kind of concerned how it's going to feel and work. And, you know, there's just questions about the unknown. But the more I know, the more that I'm getting to, to really get this inside of me, I'm looking at that word death, and, you know, it, it doesn't have a hold on the redeemed person. I just, I just admitted that I've been redeemed, and I don't question that anymore. The sacrifice was complete and perfect. Well, then now death does not have a hold on me. Okay, yeah, yeah, this physical body, yes. But you know what? We've talked enough about it, and that's why we've seen Jesus not really be that consumed with the physical body because it is something that's going to be here today and gone tomorrow, and it is going to return to the dust. And The more that I see it, then I start to understand what Paul meant when he said, death, where is your sting? See, the more that you know, the more you find that death doesn't have a sting on you. It's, it's not a tough word. Because, yeah, it might end something that really is not that big a deal, but it's going to be the beginning of something that is a very big deal. And we, can, we, don't even, we can't even put it into words. Another thing I thought as I did this story, I thought the more I see in this story, you have got such a vivid picture of what it looks like to be in the middle of such a battle. You have got the unfailing love of God in the, and, and on the other side, you have got sin at its worst. I mean, sin, sins, it's all bad, but I'm telling you, this story just chills you to your bones. You see the actions of so-called religious people. You see what pagans look like and act like without Jesus in their heart. I mean, you can just see what human nature looks like, what sin looks like. And then you've got the unfailing love of God going head to head. And then you read the ending. We win. His love wins. We are winners here. And again, the more you know this, it makes a difference. And then finally, you know, you didn't, you didn't really, there's no explanation because I don't think there's words, but there's really no explanation. We just know that he arose. I mean, don't you have a question or two about that? Like, when did it happen? How did it happen? Did it, did it go slow? Did it just, you know, I mean, we don't know. But however it happened, it's going to happen to you and it's going to happen to me. Now, that should be exciting too. Not a fearful thing, but an exciting. It's going to be such hope for us. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't um, the end here. Not a bit. You and I are going to be raised. Just like Jesus came out of that grave, we are going to be raised. I think this is what's happening to Peter, too. I think he is starting to know a little bit more. And what did it take? It took some pretty hard knocks. It took some mistakes. It took a lot of experience along the way. Sound familiar? 
See, the more we go through here and the more you keep holding on and stay connected and you keep your Bibles open and you ask for the Spirit's understanding and you know more, I tell you, it is the best way to live. So Heavenly Father, thank you that we've gone this far. We went on quite a walk tonight. But it was a walk that should absolutely change us completely. Lord, help us to see that word wretch. And I know when John Newton wrote the song, he was brutal, but he said it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Father, it's not a pretty visual that we must see, but yet, if we just continue and realize what this whole, this story that we have done tonight, last week and tonight, that changed, that changed that we don't have to ever wear that title of wretchedness again. You saved us. We're your child. We are royalty. Father, help us this Maybe a lot of us girls will be up early Saturday morning to watch the coronation, and maybe you'll be rolling your eyes, because why would we even want to do something like that? But we could get caught up in princes and queens and fairy tales. But Father, help us to never, ever forget that that is very superficial, and the real royalty And we can stand up and know we are royalty because we are children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Nothing that we have deserved. Saturday morning, we will see the way generation it passes down and we'll see future king and this next thing. But Lord, we know that we are complete royalty because of a cross. And Father, may we never take that for granted. We just praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much. And Jesus, for fulfilling and going through that horrific persecution and crucifixion and torture. Taking the cup. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking this story that we know so well and maybe put a whole new set of wings on it tonight that we see it in a whole new personal way and we'll never be the same because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.